thrive, flourish, unleash your buried treasure. This is the Exponentially Empowered Podcast with Joel Bine. Through conscious action and authentic self-connection, empower yourself to write your own script. Hey everyone, it's Joel, Exponentially Empowered Podcast, episode 50. Let us celebrate. It's been just over three years, three seasons of the show. It's been a joy to share my thoughts, express what's on my mind, and hopefully add value in your own life on ways to empower yourself, to look inward, to exercise your mind in a way that's beneficial for your present, your future, and for others around you as we seek to build a world that's healthier and happier, freer, more creative, more autonomous, more compassionate, full of win-wins. And today's guest is Ethan Nelson, who is an alum of Praxis. He is the 10th Praxis alum to appear on this show that happened to work that way with episode 50 and the 10th Praxis guest happening at the same time. I said in the show three years ago that I wanted to interview 10 Praxis guests and that was uh looking back it's sort of funny because i was started this podcast with the intention of connecting to the praxis sphere and because i wanted to work in this space i wanted to move my career in this direction and i knew building my digital portfolio through a podcast and building a network through a podcast and tickling my own curiosity through a podcast would be a great way to work towards the vision I have for myself, which was what I'm doing now. I'm not working for Praxis, but I'm working for Crash. I haven't talked about this too much on the show, but Crash is founded by Isaac Morehouse, who is also the founder of Praxis, and it's their sister companies. We're sister companies, and Crash is seeking to scale the Praxis mission to the world at large as a software platform where people can create video pitches and portfolio projects to stand out on the job hunt rather than blast out resumes, be stuck waiting for permission and hoping, which is what we're taught in school. So Praxis Crash is all about creativity, personal empowerment, forging, making your life happen. So Isaac's been a huge influence on me the past five years. So it's just fun to look back and see that I started this podcast sort of with this intention in mind of of tapping into this praxis sphere. And now here I am. Sort of, I have some of my closest friends are, are praxis alum. And I've gotten to know a lot of people in this 
tribe, so to speak. And now I'm working for Isaac with Crash, and it's really fulfilling and meaningful. And I've been authoring my own script. That's what I've been up to. So let's celebrate that for all of our lives. Let's go and make results happen based on our own desires. And Ethan and I talk about that at the beginning of the show, that concept of vision, action, dreaming, doing, dreaming, doing. It's all up to you to create your experience on this planet. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, If you are interested in supporting this show, I now have a page up on ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com slash empowered, ko-fi.com slash empowered. And if you are feeling so motivated and so gracious and inspired perhaps to support the show, it would mean a lot to me and give me fuel to continue to invest my time and energy in this project. This is a passion project for me. I'm doing it for the needs of, of creativity and self-expression. And I really enjoy creating the show. Um, I want to maybe take it to the next level and try to grow the show and If you show your support with a monetary donation or even becoming a monthly supporter, even a few bucks a month, nine bucks a month is what I typically ask or I ask as a standard amount. But as we talk about in the show, 1% is better than 0%. One push-up is better than zero push-ups. One minute meditation is better than zero minutes meditation. So I'd be deeply grateful for any amount that you would feel inspired to to donate, whether it's one-time donation or a monthly donation. So again, that's ko-fi.com slash empowered. And again, I want to invest in this show and get this message out to more people. This message of you have so much agency within your own zone your own zone of control. And we can scale this. We, as individuals, the smallest minority in the world is the individual. The individual can change the world. Can change the world through this process of curiosity, psychological introspection, integration of past experience and childhood, peaceful parenting, self-directed education, doing what makes you come alive. This mentality, this framework, is what humans need, I believe. My conviction that humans within all of us have a desire to come alive, to actualize the truest self, to nurture the seed of curiosity and scale that in every domain of life and existence, relationships, purpose. 
And I do believe that there's an opportunity right now to rebirth this culture from the inside out through this message, through one's own mind, one's own heart, with critical thinking, with compassionate feeling. We have a chance right now in a world that's backwards in so many ways. Everyone, I believe, deep down has that desire to embrace this message. But maybe that's suppressed within them. But if we can speak, amplify this message, there's so much potential in the World Wide Web to transmit information. So I want to invest in this project on a higher level and your support would give me sort of the incentive in a sense. We talk about incentives quite a bit actually in this show with Ethan. And if you, if you send me your support, your donation, your subscription to the show, that sends me a signal, right? It sends me a signal that people are on board. Right now, I, I create the shows. I, I get a lot of selfish pleasure out of creating the shows, no matter who listens, no matter how many downloads we have, whatever the case may be. But when I get feedback from you as a listener, and you tell me, yes, I am behind you in this message. Let's scale this to other people. That gives me motivation. That gives me reinforcement. That gives me validation in the healthiest way. That yes, this is worth continuing to invest in and finding ways to grow the show and reach more people, potentially doing more shows, potentially doing more collaborations, potentially working at ways to, to market the show. But I, I will always stay true. I've already I've turned down guest requests because they're not true to the show. I, I'm always going to be authentic to, to this, to what you've heard so far, which is me expressing my visions and my wisdom, hopefully some wisdom. <laughs> so without further ado, let's celebrate our 50th episode with Ethan Nelson, who's from Becoming Conscious Podcast. Definitely take a look at Ethan's work. He's an incredibly ambitious and free-thinking and philosophical, conscious young man who's on a trajectory. I can't wait to see how that plays out. Definitely give Ethan a follow on his Instagram or his YouTube channel. So again, without further ado, here's Ethan Nelson for our 50th episode. Stoked to be joined by Ethan Nelson, Exponentially Empowered Podcast, episode 50, and the 10th Praxian we've ever had on the show. So three years ago, started this podcast, and I declared, if you go back to one of the early episodes, I'm not sure which one it was, I declared that I had an intention to interview 10 alum of the Praxis program, discoverpraxis.com. 
apprenticeship, career launch program, full of philosophy, full of ambition, full of creativity, full of people writing their own scripts in life. So made it happen and happens to come on the 50th episode of the show. And we have Ethan Nelson, who was in the podcast feed a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I suppose, after I was a guest on his show, Becoming Conscious. So you can check that out. But we're going to riff on consciousness, on personal growth, on parenting, schooling, education, whatever the case may be. So Ethan, how you doing? I'm doing great, dude. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. So you just got back from a month traveling in Costa Rica. And I'm just curious to hear about what revelations you had traveling. Because I think I wrote a blog post on this some years ago. Epiphanies come from travel often. Mm. And having that state change, having that environment change triggers much personal growth and insights typically. So tell us about Costa Rica. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, What's coming up first is I think one of the biggest ways that I grew through that trip was just like by booking the ticket. Cause I was just like, well, I've always wanted to do this one thing traveling. And I had this deep sense. I was speaking with a friend and she was telling me, if you don't book it now, you're never going to book it. And I had this like deep feeling of like, oh, well, there's no better time to book this trip than like, why would I put this off another six months, you know? So I was like, well, let's just book the ticket. So I got there and I think one of the most impactful things that I got from that trip was just this self-efficacy is how I would explain it is I I would, I went into it. I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if I want to be able to find it. And then the first day being dropped in a new city, not knowing the language. And I like get out, got out of the, out of the airport and no one speaks the language. And I like, I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do. But then by the end of that day, I had a bus ticket booked. I had a hostel. I, I, I had to communicate with the person to get the bus ticket. And I was like, can I, and I couldn't speak Spanish and like somehow managed to get it. And it's like, if I can do this with like, if I can navigate this situation, it just really boosted this, like, Oh, I, I can manage life. I can manage anything that life throws at me. And I think it was just this rapid process of just having to deal with challenges left and right. And that just made me be like, yeah, now I can feel like I could go anywhere and it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to, I know that I'm going to be able to figure it out some way or another. And the, and then the other main thing that I learned from that trip was, man, I was in a bubble. <laughs> it's like, I was in this bubble in the U S like thinking that this is how most people live and not even the sense of like seeing, also seeing how Costa Rican, uh, the native Costa Ricans live and the people, um, 
Yeah, but also in the hostels, just meeting other travelers. It's like there's so many ways to live your life. Met someone who was a dentist for two months a year and then travels for 10 months a year. I met some people that work in music festivals and then they just travel all around. And Or some guy that worked on like uh, on these mega yachts for these millionaires for a couple of months a year. And then tra- it's like there's so many different ways to make whatever lifestyle you want a reality. And that just became crystal clear to me after taking that trip. And then it just really catalyzed a lot in me to be like, all right, well, why am I not living the lifestyle that I want? Just because I have these like these illusory limitations that I set on myself, because I think this is how people live around me that were uh, when I was in the nine to five world, it's just like, I thought this is how everyone lives. But then going on that trip, it's like, I just really opened my eyes to other possibilities. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. And both those points, the self-efficacy of booking the ticket, expanding your comfort zone, and then seeing how other people live. It's the same theme of basically envisioning the desired outcome and then doing it, right? You had the vision to potentially do traveling, potentially book this trip, this is in in the mind's eye, and then just do it, just do it, right? Yeah. Carpe diem. <laughs> There's never a perfect time, right? Yeah. And meanwhile, time are, is a resource that will never be renewed. So, yeah, travel, travel. When in doubt, travel. And yeah, and then you're seeing you're seeing other people and their lifestyles and. As you said, you get that exposure to, oh, this person works as a dentist for two months and then travels the rest of the year. Well, they created that vision in their mind's eye and made it happen. So it's really all about those two sides of, of, of yin and yang in that way of dream, do, dream, do, dream, do. Yeah. And it's, it's in the number of different ways to create that lifestyle is infinite. Like you can literally do it anyway. There was one guy I met that was a bartender for a month a year. There was one guy I met who said, I don't even have a job, but I'm going to ride a, uh, buy a motorcycle and drive from Chile up to Mexico and just get work at random coffee shops on the way to just give myself just enough money to make it to the next city, you know? And it's like, you can literally do it in any way, shape or form. And yeah, I just had this deep feeling of if I don't do it now, like I can always come back to that lifestyle whenever I want. I can always come back to the working my my day job in the office, like anytime if I ever want to. So like, why would I not pursue this now? I'm actually like have the energy to do it. And I'm not like, <laughs> yeah, especially in your what, 20 years old. I mean, you don't have responsibilities of family and whatnot. Do it, do it when you're young. That's, that's what they say. Um, but you can do it anytime, you know? And I think what's key here is in terms of the infinite possibilities of how to live is figuring out what actually lights you up inside, right? I'm, I know that I've thought about this sort of digital nomad lifestyle of traveling the world and living in new places every few months and adventure, adventure, adventure as a way of living. And 
I've sort of gained some self-knowledge the past few years that actually I don't want that lifestyle. I really love travel and I want to travel for maybe periods of two, four, six weeks, or even just four days weekend trip somewhere. But I really, I think want a home. I want consistency, predictability. I want to create my nest. I want to have my bed that I sleep in my yard and family. And like, I've developed these values. Oh, this is what I like. And it's really easy. I think to get swept up in thinking you need to live a certain way because maybe other people around you live a certain way, or you're exposed to these lifestyles. You listen to a podcast, you, you meet at the dentist, like you're like, Oh, well I need to do that. You know, cause that's, that's, that's cool. Or, and then what you really want to do is figure out what's, what's, what are your values? What are your desires? How do you balance these different desires? Because everyone I think has a desire for adventure and a desire for stability, right? So the question is, what's your percentage? And that's only something answer, a, a question you can answer, you know? Yeah. And I think there's some, there's one key point that's coming up here as you're speaking, and that's, we, we see these icons, these travel nomads. It looks like such the inspiring lifestyle, you know, and it's like, or, or even you listen to someone on like a, another podcast and you're like, how do I like do what they do? And it's always like, how do I do what that person does? And something that I realized recently was like doing what they do. I could do exactly what they do and still be deeply unfulfilled. And it's like, yeah. what do I actually want? It's not, I don't want to do what they do. I want to be as inspired by life as they are. And so I don't accomplish that by doing what they do. It's like this, it's all, how do you actually get there? It's just mistaking that what they're doing is causing them that, but it's really, it's like, because they found something that inspires them every day, what inspires you every day is not going to be what that person does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of Gretchen Rubin who wrote the happiness project. Have you, have you heard her podcasts or come across her work? I've, I've uh, heard her work. I've never dived into it though. Yeah. I haven't read any of the books. I just listened to a few of her podcasts and she's has some sort of nuggets of how to be happy, you know? And she had a, a bit about basically figuring out what you like. And she was talking to somebody about, uh, the, you know, going, uh, going skiing. Right. And is either going skiing or going camping. We'll just say going skiing. And uh, I guess this friend like invited Gretchen on to go skiing. And she's like, yeah, I don't really want to, I don't really like skiing. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> and then this, I guess this friend who asked her had this epiphany, this moment, and she sort of broke down in, into tears for a bit. Cause she was like, Oh my goodness. I just realized I don't like skiing either. <laughs> I might have I might have modified the story by accident a bit, but the, the essence of the message is again figuring out what you actually like because it's so easy. You might have a friend group and they're they're all into skiing, or and you're like, well, they're just touting how amazing skiing is, and you think it's I guess amazing. I need to figure out why I don't. I I need to like learn to like skiing or I think I like skiing or 
but it goes back to that self-honesty and self-knowledge of, of, of introspection. You know, the gut is the second brain and knows, knows much, right. And listening to what comes up in your body, you know, when you say, oh, we're going to go do this, we're going to do that. It's not to say you don't want to, you know, be curious and test things out and see what happens once you test things out. But yeah, it's so if you want to live a life that's true to yourself, that's fulfilling, that makes you come alive, then it goes back to that introspective, introspective process, right? Yeah, I think that's such a, I feel like it's very rare that people actually learn how, and it's a skill that you develop, learn how to listen to what the body is actually saying, because it's, it's so easy, at least from in my experience to doubt that it's like, well, is that what it's actually saying? It's like, it's really easy to just be like, oh, I don't know if that's what my body's actually telling me. And to, it takes a lot of like, just deep, just like trust falling. I feel like I'm trust falling into whatever. It's like, I don't know if this is right, but this is what my body's telling me. And like, I just kind of have to trust that. Like, I, I just telling me to go travel right now. I don't know if I'm going to end up in a ditch somewhere, but I got it <laughs> one way or the other, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And yeah. I you want to, you want, you want to balance it out with some critical thinking and questioning those feelings. But in the end, I think the gut has the most information and yeah, it just, it takes that, it takes that level of, of curiosity about yourself. And then you develop self-respect and self-esteem because you say yes, when you want to say yes and no, when you want to say no, and it doesn't matter what other people think or what other people are doing around you. And you're like, this is my life. I want this. I don't want this. Right. And that's the best gift you can give other people as well. Cause you don't, you don't want to be going around saying yes to invitations when you really would rather not be there. Right. That's not actually respectful to them or yourself. So, so in this realm of introspection, I'm curious, what's, what are you thinking about lately in the realm of consciousness and personal growth since we, since we last connected a few months ago, yeah, you know, I think we're on the same page in terms of, in terms of we're always exploring new veins of thinking and new modalities and new, new authors. So what's, what's, what's been going on the past few months? Yeah. So it's been, it's been a radical, it's been a crazy past few months. And I think the past three, four, five months. So probably four months ago, I was really deep into the space of like intuition following your gut doing only that which like feels right from the heart you know and I was in this really deep space of like like in the deep recesses of the spiritual community you know and I was you were like, into Carl Jung pretty Carl pretty Jung, deep right work and uh just all these just very like I I almost like put it put it away because like I almost don't like thinking about this but like a lot of I was in this very like the, the mind is bad like only listen to the heart like only do intuition only listen to your intuition like at all costs and like um I, I don't know it was just this very like feeling my way through the situation and so this these last like this last month or two has been like a pendulum swinging the other way so now I'm really getting into I'm starting to see these 
blind spots in the communities that I used to hang out in and that there's like there's no cognitive understanding there's no like putting pieces together it's all just like everything is equal there's no like oh this how do I explain this it's just very I've been really interested these days in like systems thinking so it's Mm -hmm. like here's the world of consciousness and spirituality so there's shadow work there's um, state development. How do I get my state of consciousness up to a more non-dual state? And then there's also psychological development. There's Here's all the stages that we go through in life on a psychological level. But then there's also the shadow work, Carl Jung stuff. As I go through the stage, I either repress or I get addicted to each of these stages as I move up. And so it's like, all right, I can focus on one of those and get really good at them. But then I'm I'm not doing anything in all of these other domains. So what's been really interesting to me lately is how do I see my life from the most systemic level so that I can see how all the pieces fit together and I can not develop in one line, but not any other line. And how can I like see systemically my life and my development? Yeah, it sounds like you want to have a big picture viewpoint yeah. on the different domains of life and philosophy, psychology, like psychology, shadow work, non-duality, whatnot. That's really soft territory, so to speak, it is. as opposed to concrete territory. So it sounds like you're trying to, to mm-hmm. balance that out and get really specific clarity, purpose. Yeah, it's also... Figuring like, all right, I used to spend all my time in these very concrete, rational, like scientific territories. And then I started spending a bunch of time in these very soft, non-dual psychology Mm -hmm. territories. It's like, how do I bridge the gap? Okay. I feel like I can't bridge the gap from the current level of understanding that I have. So I have to go to like this higher level of complexity. This I have to take more things into account and take a more bird's eye view of it in order to understand how they fit together. And so that's been like... Uh, a passion of mine lately is how do I fit all of these different domains together rather than siloing myself yeah. or reducing this one territory to what all of it. Isn't that fun? Like the integration so, process. When you yeah. have a little <laughs> insight, you learn something new and you're like, Ooh, that relates to this other area that I've been diving into for the past three months. And yeah, it's all about creating that that worldview, that integrated understanding of reality. And that includes the soft aspects, the psychological, the the non-tangible, you might say, and having the tools as well to have a rational perspective on how that soft intangible territory makes sense and yeah, I think that's a great place to be. It's very it's very often that people swing one way or the other. And when you can when you can integrate yin and yang, right? And yeah. In thinking and feeling. Have you dived into economics much? I haven't. I've been starting some of the circles that I'm starting to spend more time in have been mentioning a bunch of like stuff around economics. Um, power dynamics, political stuff, but I, I'm just really dipping my toes in that right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was curious because I know you're in those types of circles, um, but that's 
that's like another element of, of, of finding that bird's eye view of how the world works and how does the economic standpoint integrate with the personal psychology. Right. I mean, there's so much, mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the book thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. I never got a chance to read that one. Yeah. Well, he talks about sort of what you just touched on, which is system one, system two thinking that he, you know, puts those non-scientific labels on the two modes of the brain system one being automatic, intuitive, non-conscious, non-effortful system two being effortful, critical thinking, logical, um, but he, and he's talking about all sorts of heuristics and, and biases, cognitive biases from a psychological standpoint that people often fa- fall into, you know, such as confirmation bias. Yeah. Uh, and then, but he's also an economist and he's talking about, I mean, I don't really agree with his economics, but he's, well, well here's what I'll say about him. Um, and maybe a little pick your interest to, to read the book, but uh, basically he, he takes all these cognitive biases that he's lays out and that people tend to fall into. And then he says something along the lines of, therefore, you can't expect from an economic standpoint, humans to act rationally in their own self-interest because they mess up all the time in choosing what is in their self-interest. So he makes that conclusion. And what I came away from it was, well, no, what we want to strive for as humans is evolution in our ability to make rational decisions that truly are in our self-interest. And so if you didn't have 15,000 hours of public school for 95% of the population, and this might transition into our topic about school that I'm curious about your story. If you didn't have 15,000 hours of public school where kids aren't getting a chance to think independently, then you might have an adult population that's much more skilled at making rational choices in the marketplace. And you could have an economy that's filled with that. Right. So I don't know if anything you wanted to comment on any of that territory, but. Yeah, there was a couple things coming up. One about the acting in their own self-interest. I haven't heard the things, I haven't heard too much around the idea that like people don't actually act in their self-interest. But what I've been thinking about recently in regards to like systemic political ideas is like, I've always had this feeling of like, you're never going to change someone from the other side to think what you think. Like you can't, I think there's no way to create some sort of political system that works if you're just like completely destroying the other side and saying you're wrong. I think the, the, in my eyes, the only way to create this effective systemic change is to be like, this person has these self-interests, these person have the, like everyone has their own self-interest. So the, the one system that works is the one that takes into account the self-interest of all of these different groups of people and makes them work together rather than saying, 
my self-interest above all you and like this is the right this is right and you're wrong it's like not it's beyond just like us right and wrong it's like based on the self-interest of all these people how do we actually solve these systemic problems how do we make these people's self-interest work towards the solution to these problems rather than against them um that was what was coming up as you were speaking yeah and i love that that's harmony in my book humans interacting whether it's in the marketplace in personal relationships just interacting on this planet the spinning globe humans who are all seeking self-interest even if they mess up it is wired into us to seek self-interest even if we fool ourselves but again if we can develop our rationality or allow our rationality to unfold and not get it squished in these systems and we can do really well. And I think that translates to interacting. If, if everyone's seeking to get their needs met, not self-sacrificing, right. Then we can have an economic macro system that's flourishing. People are creating win-win interactions but oftentimes in this culture, we have this meme of self-sacrifice. It's good to think of others first. And you need to deny your own self. This ties into like the shadow stuff. I mean, when you deny the parts of yourself, what you truly want, right? Again, that, that ties in what I was saying about Gretchen Rubin's little nugget on the skiing. When you deny what you truly want and suppress your own needs, then you're self-sacrificing and not saying what you want. And then we're risking having win-lose interactions or lose-lose interactions. So, yeah, you see, I think, like, I, I really see that sort of connection with the personal psychology, how you relate to yourself, your own self-esteem, your own understanding of what you want, and then expressing that to other human beings. And if we can all do that, man, that'd be a wonderful planet. Yeah. What was coming up as you were speaking about that was if we, if we deny people what they want, it's all they're there. We're basically just repressing those and they're going to come back stronger in other yeah. ways, potentially more negative. And Yeah, yeah. It's like it, the you had that idea come up around the win-win, and that that's something that's been really core to what I've been thinking about. It's like how do we create a system where this person feels like they're winning, and I also feel like I'm winning? Where we where we find a way to like to take out the win-lose scenario in every single situation. I have more money, you have less money. I have this, you have less of that. It's like how do we create a system where if I succeed, you also succeed. And they, this other person also succeeds. And like, we all are moving towards systemic change because we all, all of our self-interests are correlated in working towards this positive change. It's not like I have to sacrifice in order for the whole to be better. And also what was coming up was, is it, is it just like this, this idea of like virtue signaling? It's like, am I self-sacrificing because other people told me that self-sacrificing is good? Thus, if I self-sacrifice, I'm like 
trying to be seen as better in light of like all my peers or is it like and I think that's what it is a lot more of the time I I don't see very often where it's just like I want to self-sacrifice just self-sacrifice because that's what I value and I see that as the best thing to do and that's what I hold as a virtue yeah and this is why everyone is acting in self-interest their perceived self-interest, no matter what. It's in, inescapable. So if you are a full subscriber to the self-sacrifice doctrine, selflessness is a virtue. Think of others first. That is a philosophy and behavior that you think is in your self-interest. So it, it, yeah. it's sort of funny, right? But people who act selfless to the max and denying and, and suppress and repress their true nature and true desires have memes in their mind that they believe they subscribe to that it is better for me if I am selfless. And so we're, we're, it, when I'm saying those words, selfless and better for me, selfless meaning denial of the true desires and you have this rational rationalization happening where you see that is actually the best for your organism, right? Because then you'll fit in with the group of all the other, other people who also subscribe to selflessness and you will be viewed as a noble person and you will be accepted. So that is in your self-interest for your relationships. That's the whole, all the rationalization happening. And so it's impossible to escape pursuing self-interest in from that standpoint. But what we really want is to not suppress these parts and to offer authentic giving, right? To, to think of other people's needs in a genuine, generous way where it is in your self-interest, your authentic self-interest to give to other people as long as you're not suppressing yourself in the process. And that's, that's the win-win. That's the glory. But man, that is, that took me most of my twenties to unpeel that stuff, man. There's so much in our culture about self-sacrifice and selfishness is bad. That's just boom from a young age. Probably many of our parents are telling us age one, two, don't be selfish, right? Share your toys because I said so, don't be a bad person. All this stuff's getting conditioned into us. And so it's a lot to unpeel, but if we can unpeel it, we can see win-win is the way to go. Right, Ethan? Like, yeah, yeah. And, it's all, and then this other psychology comes in where we question that. It's too good to be true. It'd be too good to be true if everyone flourished on this planet. If no one had to truly suffer and do work that they hated doing, grinding, sacrificing through relationships. I mean, what if everyone could have a lot of wealth? Everyone could express their feelings openly. Everyone could pursue what makes them come alive and then give to other people, not out of obligation, but out of joy and people receive out of joy. And it's just like a big, happy world of, of flowing energy, you know? Mm. 
Yeah, I'm starting to sense this becoming a reality, especially with the internet age. It's becoming much more of a it's becoming much more accessible to like, oh, what do I actually want to do? All right, I can actually make that a reality by finding work like that on the internet or by finding, uh, I, I see that becoming more and more of a reality in the coming years and decades. And uh, something, I want to come back to the point you had on schooling and education. I think I want to go back on that topic. That would be really interesting. Well, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts right now and then i'm curious to kind of hear your personal story but so take it however you want yeah so what was coming up for me as you said that is like if we didn't have this college system that kind of indoctrinates people and programs them into this specific way of living and kind of says like this is how society works and stuff like that a quote came up to me that i just found a couple days ago and i'm gonna butcher it but it was I don't want my college to get in the way of my education or I don't want my, my, my university time to get in the way of me actually learning something. And I thought that was really like, huh? Like is, is the college actually getting in the way of the true learning instead of actually teaching, thinking it's teaching us stuff. That's how I've always felt about college in general. I, uh, I've always been a very intellectual person, but then coming up on like the junior year of high school, I was like, I don't want to go to college. Like I want to pursue these intellectual desires that I have without college because I feel like college is going to mess me up if I go there. It's not going to, it's not going to give me the space to truly pursue these in a open-minded way and to not, I, I felt that it would be extremely challenging to, to maintain my sense of intellectual sovereignty while in that environment because I would just have all these like I'd just be getting lectured to for eight however many hours a day and like I felt that it would take a lot of work to just maintain that that what am I looking for the ability to think for myself basically and so I basically coming out of high school I was like well what can I do instead I chose Praxis because I was like, well, I want to be independent and I want to be on my own. And how can I do that? That was kind of the first step. So I joined Praxis, made that a reality. And now in my life, my main focus is how can I, now that I have like freedom, I don't have debt, I'm living on my own. I, I basically got what I, Praxis helped me get to the step that I wanted to go. And now it's like, all right, well, I have all these intellectual pursuits and these intellectual desires and now my main focus is how do I match my career with these intellectual desires and with these, with what I actually want to do with my life. And I think that um, practice helped me get there so much faster because if I didn't, then I would be 24 with debt. And then it would take me till, my, till I'm 30 to be in the position where I'm at right now when I'm 20. So I feel like I've saved 10 years of my life getting to this point of I have independence. Now let me align my desires with my career. You, yeah, totally. You totally saved yourself 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that's why practice is so beautiful because it's not only practical to launch your professional life without debt and building valuable skills. It's about pursuing what makes you come alive. It's pursuing your own curiosity, pursuing your own interest and forging your own path. So there's no interference of 
the college, as you said earlier, you don't want the college to get in the way of your education. That doesn't happen with praxis. Your education is intertwined with your own experience in praxis. And man, I, I, you mentioned the quote and then I had was inspired to pull up my quotes document that I've been creating. I've been adding to for literally a decade, no, 12 years now. Um, like it's hard to get onto this document. It has to be a really big time quote, <laughs> but um, there's one from Emerson um, that I, that I saved some years ago. And it's, it's, it's a few sentences long, but I'll go ahead and just read it because it just reminded me of that. And then I want to hear about your uh, K through 12 experience. He says, if the colleges were better, if they really had it, you would need to get the police at the gates to keep order in the inrushing multitude. See in college, how we thwart the natural love of learning by leaving the natural method of teaching what each wishes to learn and insisting that you shall learn what you have no taste or capacity for. The college, which should be a place of delightful labor, is made odious and unhealthy, and the young men are tempted to frivolous amusements to rally their jaded spirits. I would have the studies elective. Scholarship is to be created not by compulsion, but by awakening a pure interest in knowledge, the wise instructor accomplishes this by opening to his pupils precisely the attractions the study has for himself. The marking is a system for schools, not for the college, for boys, not for men. And it is an ungracious work to put on a professor. That's Emerson. Yeah, so he says the marking, he's talking about grades, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, oh man, it's just the compulsion is the key to all of this. If there's a grade, if it's against your will, you cannot have education. And so, this is how college gets in the way of education. Even if you're studying a topic that's really interesting to you, it can get spoiled through the process of that acquired courses. So my vision for education in every age is full choice. And you could be studying some really advanced specific topic and you need a, you need a professor, you need a guide, a mentor, et cetera, but there's no grades. It's just pursuing those people, pursuing those options. And there's, it's completely elective, right? As he says. So yeah, good, good, good points there on, on the sort of higher education space, but I wanted to tap into your story of growing up as a, a younger boy and child and teenager. And obviously you found this sort of realm of curiosity, consciousness. Uh, I believe you started your becoming conscious YouTube channel, like what you were like 16 or something. Yeah, I think I was, I started blogging about it when I was a freshman in high school. And then I started taking it seriously when I was like a junior in high school. But yeah, going back to my childhood and growing up, I would say some of the defining parts is I. Did you go to public school? 
Yeah, so I went to I went to public school, unlike a lot of Praxians. I went to public school. I went elementary school and high school, and then as I or middle school, and then as I was transitioning into high school, I did this program um, called the Early College Program to help me get like uh, ideally, every if you went through the entire program, it was a four year program in high school. You would get two years knocked off your college. So I was already thinking about like. How do I like not take all of those like basic courses when I get to college? Um, and so that was my thought process. But then I had to transfer high schools. So when I transferred high schools, I knew no one. I did. I just didn't feel like I fit in very much. And I was just like going through the motions and it kind of sucked. So then I transferred back to my other high school. And then at that point, it was the same experience. Everyone already had their in groups. And like I, I struggled to like find a solid group of people that I could like relate with. So in high school, I ended up spending a lot of my time reflecting, just like introspecting by myself, reading, like I wasn't always out doing stuff. I spent a lot of my time like just with myself reading and just really contemplating a bunch of stuff. I think that's really why I took the path that I'm on. And it's like, do I wish that I was more outgoing in high school? It's like a lot of times I do, but then it's like, well, then I would not have the ideas I would not be where I am today because I wouldn't have had the space to pursue the things that I actually wanted to pursue and I really uh think that how I got here was um attributed to my parenting a lot my my parents were extremely open they basically said we don't want you to believe anything that we believe we want you to determine what you want to believe by yourself so they basically said we're not going to give like Obviously, they had certain positions, but they never like force anything on me. And so, like, it's I, I think it's hilarious because right now we have like so many differing viewpoints in my family. It's not like we're all just like Christian or atheist. It's like someone in my family is very agnostic atheist. We have someone that's pursuing Christianity. I'm like on this road of like all religion, pursuing all these different religions. And it's like there's this. It also leads to really interesting conversations. I yeah. remember having conversations with my dad in high school just like debating different topics for hours because I was like pursuing the stuff on my own. And then he also was, so we would have topics around atheism versus religion and all this stuff um, for hours and hours. And I think I attribute a lot of it to that. And my dad also was a very defining factor. in I feel like where I am today, when I was like 14, he got me into like the minimalist movement. So, you know, like, the minimalist I met up with, uh, that's how I found Praxis was through listening to their podcast. Right, right. Hey, was on the, their podcast. So at a really young age, I was thinking about intentional living. How do I live the most intentional life? What I was like, I, I just remember just like constantly fantasizing about what do I want to do after high school? I was like, I don't want to be in high school. What am I going to do after high school? And I was like, well, I could like buy a van. I could travel. I could like go. It's all these things like beyond just university that I had these visions for my life and that ultimately led into well how do I live a good life and and then it led into mindfulness I want I have if I can't live a good life if I'm always thinking about something other than what I'm experiencing right now so that's kind of how I got into the consciousness space but uh yeah it's just been a process since I was 14 of personal development and figuring out how I can live the best life possible that's what's kind of where I feel like it's. Oh, man. I'm, I'm celebrating that so much that your parents 
told you don't believe anything we say because we say it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, ah, that's so good. That's what I want to do with my future kids. Hmm. And it's, that's the way to go because even if you have the ideal worldview supposedly, or you are fully aligned with truth as the parent, uh, you don't want to make the kids believe you. That's antithetical to philosophy. So there's no need to teach your kids what truth is. There's no need to teach your kids to reason. It's the natural capacity of the child to seek truth and to reason. And so you let that happen. You get out of the way and you invite stimulating conversations. So even if, again, even if the parent has the worldview that is the, the ideal, it doesn't, you you never want to make the kids learn that. So it's like, it's really liberating when you're thinking about parenting philosophy and how you want to parent your kids or your current kids or future kids and it's like, well, what do I need to teach my kids about how to think? You don't yeah. need to teach your kids how to think at all. They know how to think. You need to allow your kids to think, you know? So that's, yeah. that's beautiful. And, and I'm sure that you didn't necessarily, you didn't get the full sort of unschooling experience, which would have been maybe more, would have been more ideal because in public school, uh, it's few and far between um, to get those that level of choice and autonomy about how to think. But uh, man, the fact that you got that message and you had those conversations with your dad as a teenager and there's this diversity of thought in the family. I'm just celebrating that. And, and just celebrating that, you know, you decided at age 14 to introspect and become mindful. And you had that experience going to the new high school, which wasn't enriching and, you made rather than falling into a depression or whatnot, you're like, what, what can I do? I want to figure things out. Uh, or maybe you did fall into a depression. That could be, <laughs> could be a catalyst, but like you were, you were determined to try to understand and, and, and nurture your curiosity. And that, that brought you to the minimalists and an intentional living and, and then eventually praxis and everything. So, uh, yeah, and just man, I'm 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 so delighted that you had the, the the resources as well with like podcasts and like podcasts basically didn't get going at all until after I graduated high school, and even then it was really weird or it was rare for anyone to listen to podcasts. Um, it's just so so amazing that something like the Minimalists is just right there for you. And you don't need the minimalists to be the gurus. They're just asking you to live intentionally. And then that just gets you going on your journey, you know? Yeah. I I think one of the key points as you were speaking was whenever you teach someone, someone what to think, it's almost the same idea with like telling someone to be selfless. If I teach someone what to think, there's almost like an inherent like backlash against it. Like, I don't want to, you're not telling me what to think, you know? So I, I noticed that with a lot of people, it's like, 
so many people I know, their parents are hardcore Christians and therefore they're atheists because they're like, they try to tell me to be a Christian and I'm not going to be one. And then, but then it's also like, then now they're defaulting to atheism. They also haven't thought for themselves just because it's just a revolt against what their parents. So yeah, it's just this, which I was trying to unpack what you're talking about, about not teaching them how, how to think they already know how to think. Cause I've always like kind of approached it as don't teach someone what to think, give them the tools to think for themselves type of thing. And I think that's, that's the only way to do it. Like if I'm not, what's the point of college? The point of college should not be to get lectured at all day and to give you all the facts. The point of college or education should be to inspire you to go out and learn by yourself. That's like the only purpose that I see of education to inspire you to do the, do the learning yourself. Yeah. And it, it could be inspiration or it could be catching the trajectory you're already on. Right. Because if you're coming from a place of self-directed learning, following your curiosity that you are born with, that's never obstructed going to public school or whatnot. And then you find an organization, let's call it, I mean, in my vision, you could have higher education, but completely unsubsidized and completely free and you have no grades and everything. You could have formal, you could have formal structure of education with adults mentors, guides who are more knowledgeable in a given domain. And then you can go there and they can catch your curiosity and nurture it, right? So there's a place for the more experienced human to to offer tools, to offer information uh, and even, even how to think actually. I mean, something like the trivium method of critical thinking is the tool framework of basically looking at any piece of information from this three-pronged lens of grammar, logic, rhetoric. So grammar is any word you come across, define the word. Like Any input coming into your senses, identify it figure out what it is. Then second steps, logic, try to understand how different pieces of data make sense, untangle any contradictions. And then you come to a conclusion and you can express that through rhetoric. So that's like a, a great tool framework that an adult, a parent, whatnot could offer the child. The, the key becomes, are you imposing or are you exposing? Are you saying you must think in this way, you must use this trivium methodology. That's the way to think. Or are you saying, as you're developing a relationship with your child, all this amazing conversations, all this flowing energy, all about curiosity, mutual respect. And then as the parent, you could say, hey, this is a tool that's been really effective for me. And it's not even, you don't even have to say, you should do it. It's just like, Here's a tool, you know, yeah. exposing and mm. the child can come to that in his own time, in her own time. I do think, but I do think there is, the point is there is a place for the, the elder person to engage, right? Uh, 
you don't need to sit, just sit back and do nothing. That's like a misconception of unschooling is the parents just completely gone. <laughs> um, it's I, my vision is let the child's curiosity lead everything. And then as a parent, how can you nourish that? No, yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I feel like I, it makes a lot more sense now. The idea of teaching, not teaching them how to think, but just giving, just saying, here, here's a couple of tools. Use them if you want. Like, well, it makes sense. Be, and it makes sense that we hear that term, teach how to think, because in the culture growing up, we're basically taught not to think. And then yeah. we need to learn how to think because of that suppression. But if we never have the suppression, the thinking is already active. And then, you don't need to explicitly receive information about how mm. it, it's something. Yeah, absolutely. And as you were talking about unschooling, something that's coming up for me and I haven't really like um, elaborated on this thought like too much. So it might be a little bit hazy, but I'm going to try to try to bring it up. It. it makes sense. For you. Uh, a lot, the main focus I have in education has been, or is how do we give the right incentive structures to those in school and those running the schools? So it's like right now, what is the incentive of someone going into college? It's to, to get the grades and to get, get the piece of paper. What is the incentive for uh, a professor? Well, it's to get the funding or like a researcher to get the funding to, to please someone else. So how do we create the incentives align the incentives so that the incentive or so that people want to learn for the sake of learning, not for a grade or for something else. And um, going back to like economics and politics too, I, re I was listening to this really fascinating um, speech last night and like this kind of ties in. So I want to, I want to bring this point up. And basically this guy was saying the key solution the key way to solve lobbying and all this like crony capitalism is by is a radically empowered and educated base of citizens that can look into these issues and make informed decisions about legislation. The most he, he was providing a point saying the most important part of education is teaching people the science of government. Right now, he's like the STEM is not important. He says right now colleges are turning out people. Um, who can be weaponized because they're in the science and research research field. So it's like, we're teaching people how to do the scientific method, but we're not teaching people why it's important or like any of the context around it. So he's saying that we're severely lacking in people that are studying history and politics in order to have civic engagement that will counter unchecked power. Um, I don't know that, that, that was what yeah. I was just well, the incentives me. are huge. I'm, I'm yeah. glad you brought that angle up and, you know, to get into that political false political philosophy a bit or economics or whatnot. I mean, that's the thing about having these monopolistic institutions of government schools and subsidized higher education, subsidized science. It's, not incentivized properly because the funding is is taken 
coercively. And so there's no organic marketplace incentive structures unfolding, right? Mm-hmm. And so in a fully free market, you're going to have um, multiple organizations seeking to earn their funding through quality work. That's what's lost when you have monopolistic structures. The quality in a K through 12 institution, there's no incentive. I mean, having worked in the freaking K through 12 system, I felt it. There is no incentive to be a quality educator. It's very difficult Mm -hmm. to be fired. And the customers, so to speak, are going to be there no matter what. They're not even customers because they don't get to choose to come. The parents don't get to choose that they pay. So no matter how poorly or well you are perform your job, it's not going to affect the funding because it's taken from, from the property taxes. Um, charter schools make it a little bit better because there's a little bit more freedom there for the the parents, the families to choose which institution, but it's like, what we really need is a full marketplace where there's incentives to provide services and people freak out about this. Like, Oh no, we have education fully privatized. That's going to mean it's all about the greed of the, the company. And they don't care about their customers. Like, no, they care about their customers more because they need to persuade them through creativity, not coercion to, trade services for funding and then it's going to incentivize everyone uh, educators to provide amazing services so i mean it's it's really it's night and day in terms of those incentive structures and that translates to science as well so yeah i think it's going to be a slow shift for us it could be fast potentially, but one step at a time in terms of trying to transform this culture so that we can align these incentives incentives. And I think it's, you know, through conversations like this, through people like yourself and myself forging our own paths and not relying upon these systems, creating more freedom, you know, bringing, bringing more consciousness to parenting and education. And then, and then there's more and more of a demand for, this standard of education and self-directed living. And then people start rejecting these monopolistic institutions. So Mm. have you thought, have you thought much about like the incentives with monopolies in terms of like government institutions? Not, not too much, but it's like the, what I have thought about is what is the incentive for a, Right now, the incentives don't align with the citizens. I think that's in government as well as education is kind of how I've been thinking about it is the corporation, what is their incentive? Well, it's to, it's to get the legislators to, to support them and their benefits and to make them more money. It's always bottom line. What is the legislator's interest? It's to stay in office, whether that means getting money from the corporations and doing whatever the corporate in, is in the corporation's best interest. And so it's like, how do we create a system where the incentive is to listen to the citizens and do what is best for the citizens? 
I think that's only possible, like you said at the end, is if people like you and I are actually educated on this stuff so that we can are empowered to do to do something to create some sort of change where they actually will want to listen to us. You know, if no one is educated, then there no ever it's just gonna be there's gonna be default positions like there is now. And that's why I have like there's something deeply deeply like it feels wrong to me that we have like just a two-party system because it's like well people are just going to default one way or the other is anyone in either of these tribes actually thinking about these core issues and trying to get these legislators to act differently on these core issues or is it just if you're in this tribe you're in this tribe if you're in this tribe then you're in that tribe or it's like and then we're going to fight against each other and it's like i don't see any difference no matter what tribe is in office i don't see any difference in that the the incentives are still wrong they're still geared towards these corporate structures and like the it's just so off so i'm like how do i actually change this system rather than just fight for one side or the other because i don't i not haven't figured out a solid way to do that but that's kind of where my mind's at these days yeah the tribalism stuff's very disappointing you know it's not it's not moving us forward as a species and culture uh, the either or thinking black and white the group think um yeah i don't think there's a way to get the legislators to listen because of the incentive structures that are already baked in so yeah you're 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 touching on the 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 crony capitalism the corporatism which is absolutely a problem and when you have these relationships between these big businesses and government, then the incentives are all distorted and it's much more difficult for smaller companies to get started in the marketplace. And, um, but what's typically missed from the left liberal perspective is the reason that's a problem is not the corporation, not the business, not the big business. It's the existence of government itself, allowing any sort of lobbying to happen. So if you take out that elephant in the room, then there's no lobbying for these businesses to go. And then they have to, then they need to work within the marketplace by themselves. And so this is where it gets, that's just the whole, it's a whole new perspective on it. So we could dive into that for hours. Um, but uh, it's absolutely the case that, that uh, it's not working for the people, you know, it's not working for the people when you have that, that level of, um, of, of corruption. And, and then it's something like science too, man. Like I, I, I don't think there's really much science actually happening right now because it's so subsidized or whatnot. There's so many, um, other factors that are influencing people and, and the, 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 the confirmation that bias that can come up and a scientific supposedly scientific experiment um you know the pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry i mean there's so much distortion and it comes back to like yeah putting money in people's pockets but that wouldn't be happening if you didn't have these um the ability of one organization that's known as government to make these arbitrary laws right 
that forces people to behave a certain way through coercion. Like that's, that's what's getting in the way. So what were you going to say? I was going to say the incentives again, or I've always, I felt deeply the same way about science is like, how can I trust science? Like, Oh, it's the scientific process. All right. Sure. They're doing the scientific process, but what is the incentives behind their research? And is that influencing what they're looking at and like the information that they're getting? And it's kind of like, yeah, who's funding this scientific research project? Is it helping out some person? And I think it's a very complex, a complex and complicated thing to say, like, how can I actually know which science to trust, which not to, um, and really diving into trying to make sense of the world with science. I think that's a very complex issue. I think you were saying. Yeah, it makes it hard as a, an everyday person trying to make sense of reality, make sense of scientific claims, make sense of economic claims, historical claims. There's so much distortion because of these incentive structure issues that it's hard to know what's true, especially in an age of information overload. It's very hard to know what's true. And so I'm reminded of a, a podcast Isaac Morehouse did. Isaac Morehouse is the founder of Praxis and, and my CEO at, at Crash. And he had a podcast on his own show a few weeks ago called Stop Seeking Truth. And his claim was, instead of trying to figure out what's true, just try to figure out what is bullshit. You hear something, okay, is this bullshit? Because it, it's so hard to like to trust sources there's so much conflicting information. There's all these underlying incentive structures. But imagine if it were flipped and we had healthy incentive structures, then you'd have all these organizations that are seeking truth and their reputation will be attached to how well they provide truth. And then you can actually over time as a consumer develop you still want to be independent and critical thinker all the time, but you can actually develop a healthy sense of trust for a particular organization, the journalist, scientific institution, etc., because you know that they're incentivized to provide truth. Now it seems like in the current world, people are incentivized to be anti-truth. <laughs> it's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Yeah, I think this topic of sense making is such a tricky topic and it's it's why I'm spending so much time in it these days because like I want to make sure I get this thing right. I want to make sure that I'm actually finding ways to make sense of the world. I think the biggest problem I see nowadays is giving away some your our authority to these influential or more powerful, more famous intellectual people saying, oh, I trust what they have to say. Therefore, I'm going to give my ability to make sense of the world to them. I see that as like something really struck me as like that. That's not right. And then I also realized, oh, crap, I'm doing that in many, many, many ways. And that kind of scared me. It's like, damn, I've been giving away my like I've been letting other people make sense of the world for me. Like I, this is not good. I need to take that back into my own hands. And so I think but it's like you said, it's so complicated. There's so many different um, 
factors that go into what is a what is a good scientific research who's funding it where is this where is this source coming from what are their incentives why are they telling me this do they get something out of it if i believe them there's all of these different things we must ask in order to do this effectively and i think uh i think learning how to do that in my eyes learning how to do that will also as a byproduct cause a better political system, a better government, a better economic system. Because if I'm able to make sense of all of these political economic um, philosophies myself and not having someone from the right or the left telling me what to believe, then I will also be able to impact the system in a, in a positive way. But uh, that's kind of how I've been approaching these issues these days. Yeah. I think, I think we're on the same page about, a lot of this and sort of personal empowerment to think, develop your own critical thinking skills. I just go towards, instead of trying to work with the system, let's go create new systems. And so that the current system becomes obsolete. Right. And that's what Praxis was founded upon criticized by creating, right. Instead of, instead of arguing with people about college, like, Hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to go create this and see if it's better. See if the market actually responds by people paying us to do this new way. Oh, and that's the proofs in the pudding. It's all you need to do. So Chris has by creating, and I also see that in the realm of, we can bring it back to the parenting stuff. Like in the, just, just, just our whole, both of our podcast shows, uh, um, themes of, of conscious living of, of bring it back to self. Right. Cause we can get all, all, all up in the branches of the political philosophy, economics, which I think is helpful. But if we spend all that time there, we lose the the root, which is individual choice, right? Because there's no such thing as groups of people. There's only individual people that have their own minds, making choices, believing certain memes. So I think if we can center on our own mind, our own consciousness, and allowing children to have that freedom to figure things out, then you're going to see a healthy tree grow over time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, what, what unschooling projects and like startups and yeah, what unschooling projects are you most interested in these days? How, what are the most like, forward-thinking educational institutions that you're seeing popping up? Yeah, well, I I think it's really the family institution, essentially. Families, individual humans, parents, small groups that are thinking consciously, intentionally about parenting and home education so the most powerful, I think, are the ones that don't have a brand name, <laughs> that don't have an institution formally, an organization, whatnot. Um, it's those individual families and maybe families that are collaborating with, with neighbors and whatnot on home education. And home education means learning is living. It means going out into the world. It means traveling. It means apprenticeships. It means 
so many different ways. It's not, that's why I do not like the term homeschooling. I just don't like it because language has power and connotation has power. Homeschooling has a connotation of sitting around a kitchen table. I don't believe in sitting around a kitchen table and making kids do things. That is not, that is not education. That's school at home. Homeschooling. Home education, self-directed learning is unschooling. These are more favorable terms for me because there's so much dy- uh, there's so much um, dynamic um, variety and diversity in how people learn. So that's where like I'm most excited about is people who are the, the families who are empowering themselves, right? The families, the parents who are empowering themselves in the realm of, of trauma healing and in, in, integrating their own childhood experience so that they, they can become as trigger-free as possible and how they interact with their children. I mean, giving them as much trust as possible, or even just processing your own public school experience when you weren't given the choice about when to learn, how to learn, what to learn, where to learn, why to learn, from whom, from whom to learn, then it's easy as a parent to project that onto the kid your own kid, even if you're like unschooling is your philosophy, you need to process your own experience so that you're not projecting. So that's where I think there's the most power. And then you have a lot of these sort of alternative schools that are giving a lot more freedom. There's Acton Academy, which is founded in Austin. There's, there's Acton Academies all over the world. Um, they're not fully radical, but they're very radical. Um, there's Circle School is one in, in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, the Sudbury Valley School, which is, I don't like how they do like, they have like democratic voting in, intertwined in in their structure of their environment, but it's essentially just unschooling. So it's very free. Um, yeah, so Sora School is another one in Georgia, just giving a lot more freedom for teenagers. So there's a lot coming up that, I mean, 30 years ago, you had very little openness about, I mean, Sudbury Valley School was founded in the 60s, but that was like an anomaly. And there's a lot more options popping up in the marketplace and gets me excited about the future. So. Awesome. Awesome. Are you, um, was your like K through eight, experience like how was your like what was your relationship with with like teachers and homework and were were you a good kid bad kid rebel like like you've mentioned that like rebelliousness isn't isn't necessarily good either right i'm curious about like how you psychologically like related to that concept of authority I didn't challenge authority when I was K through A. I was not rebellious. I would just get straight A's, do the work, and then. But I would also pursue learning outside of that work. So it's like, all right, I'll do what you tell me, but I'm just gonna. K through A, I was really like, kind of. I felt like now looking back, I was very indoctrinated into the system. And I really thought like, I need to get good grades. This is like my future, you know, that's like what they implant into you. My future depends on these grades, you know? And so like, I, I basically, yeah, went through all the motions and got the grades K through eight, but something 
now that you brought that up around sophomore junior around sophomore junior year in high school something clicked into me and i'm like this is not really going to benefit me just like listening to everything they're saying so i think sophomore junior senior year something clicked and i basically committed to doing the minimum amount of work that would let me get a good grade and then to use all the extra time to pursue learning by myself so i was like all right i'll spend like 20 minutes on this homework just to make sure make the teacher happy and then i'm gonna like read this book or like a lot of times in class i remember i remember while the teacher was lecturing i was just like reading my own book and just like like on a completely different topic you know and i was like well i I was i had i was good at school like i didn't really struggle with school that much i think that was a gift because that meant that i could not really focus still get a good grade and like do anything else during class that i wanted to on the what that what i was interested about and then just like let kind of the grades just fall by the way not grades fall by the wayside but like not put very much energy into the into the system so that's kind of how i frame my k through 12 education my relationship with it that's awesome so i'm curious about that sort of shift where you were sort of getting the good grades and the good kid or kind of bought into that and then you're like realize oh let's just play this this is a game let me just there's minimum like, did you have any sort of transition where you had to sort of decompress from that hyper vigilance of getting the, the top grades or even just having assignments hoisted upon you? Because, I mean, you had this shift where you, you've articulated that when you're 14, you started, you know, creating your own projects and the blog and the podcast, uh, YouTube channel. and you had this curiosity, this flame and this intrinsic motivation. So often in school, we get that flame extinguished because we're just trying like all, all we think education is, is do what we're told. It's a chore. Like, did you have any like psychological transition where you started having more outside motivation to do extra projects or was it pretty seamless? I think it was always there to a subtle degree. I remember in like middle school reading, reading a bunch of books on my own and really being interested on in that type of stuff. But I think, yeah, something that's coming out for me, coming up for me is junior year of high school. I was on the golf team and I was taking a bunch of AP courses And I remember having to go to golf practice for two hours a day after school and then having like two or three AP courses per day, like an insane amount of work, you know, just insane. So I would go to school, take these like, take like calculus, AP language, like all these like really challenging courses. And I would go home or go to golf practice until 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And then I had to stay out seven, eat dinner. And then I, I would basically just like, wearing myself out completely you know i think 
after doing that for a few months and just completely draining myself and not having any free time to pursue anything that I wanted, I kind of just like snapped, you know, I was just like, this, why am I doing, why am I taking these challenging courses if I can't pursue anything that I actually want to pursue? And I'm just like being forced to learn all this stuff. But it was, I did it because it was under the veil of like, well, I'm like expanding my knowledge and I'm like, I'm taking, I'm doing the challenging thing and I'm like taking the challenging course. And after a while I realized, no, I'm not. I'm just like radically conforming to whatever their most challenging courses are. I'm not pursuing learning on my own. And so (laughs) senior year, (laughs) I didn't take any challenging courses. I took, they didn't, they gave us like the ability to have like certain time off. So I would, I uh, took the minimum number of courses. I got to school at 9 p.m. and I left at noon every day. And I took super easy classes. So like I didn't have any homework. And then that's kind of when I was like, all right, now I'm actually getting the time to pursue what I want. That's when I was like looking into practices, starting the podcast, starting the blog. And I was like, that's kind of what broke for me. I was like, why am I working myself 12 hours a day doing all this school when like it's not supporting me in any way, shape or form? It's almost like you beat them at their own game where you were maxed out doing the challenging AP courses and you're so ambitious that you are too ambitious for them. Yeah. Right. You're like, I, ah, I'm, I'm so smart or ambitious or driven whatnot that I'm realizing that this game isn't worth playing. Whereas most people, they never get to that level. Like there's a lot of really driven intelligent people in high schools mm-hmm. who they they stay in that paradigm so they, they they top out at take the ap classes and do all the extracurriculars and prepare for college and they never go to the next level which is question the entire premise and do something even better which is create your own projects <laughs> and that's like that's why i said i kind of <laughs> joke like praxis is better than harvard because the, the people who do praxis are too good for Harvard. They're too smart to, to realize. I mean, they realize that the college degree isn't necessary. I mean, there, there's maybe some benefits of going to Harvard that you wouldn't get otherwise with some like a stimulating professors or whatnot. But you realize like, oh, the, the cost benefit with the tuition is not worth it. And I can learn on my own and practice is better than Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking back to that too, it's like, I've always struggled with that because going back to my hometown or like seeing, going back to any old friends, it's like, it's very hard to see that as being more valuable to seeing it as being more valuable to not go to school because everyone around me was like, what are you doing? You're stupid. You're like, yeah, you're not going to college. What? Like you're, you're, you're wasting your smarts. You were so intelligent in high school. Why are you not going to college? You know? And I'm like, cause I don't want to pursue that sort of intelligence that they're teaching me. I want to pursue, I, I want to pursue it on my own. Did you already have practice in, in the, not when I was in high school, no. The radar? Actually, it was funny because after high school, I was like, I was so against college. I was like, I do not want to do this. This is not what I want to do as my ne- next step in life. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm like, I want to do something more intentional, but I don't know what it is. So I basically just didn't apply to any colleges. And I just said, I'm taking a gap year and I'm going to do something cool. 
and I uh, I just wrote down everything on a list. And then I was like, oh, what was that thing I listened to like two years ago on that one podcast? I like went back to the minimalist. I was like scrolling through it. I was like, oh, TK Coleman. And it like <laughs> it was two years after I listened to that initial podcast. I was like, oh yeah, that could be an option too. And I laid all my options out and I like, I actually bought a visa to go work in Australia. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to travel to backpack Australia for a little while. And then I, I kind of realized I was, I was too naive and I don't think I was ready for that. And I was like, well, let's just do praxis and then I can go backpack after I gain my independence, you know, and that's what, ha- what has happened. So it's crazy that it all worked out. Ah, oh, so good. That's yeah. That's that podcast of the minimalists is TK is on fire. I'm listening to a <laughs> lot of his shows. It's episode 131 of the Minimalist Podcast. I'm going to link to that in the show notes because it's such gold. And if anyone listening is thinking about paths, professional life, have friends, family who are thinking about launching their career in college, is it worth it when you have $1.7 trillion in student loan debt in this country? Listen to that episode. So, ah, uh, so good. Well, uh, man, it's always a pleasure, Ethan. So much, so much shared curiosity about the world and making sense and personal growth. And I- I'm so, I'm so pumped to watch you continue to grow and, and calcify and and self-actualize in these coming years because you got to, you got started at 14 man when i was 14 <laughs> i was just like yeah my fire almost went out and you 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 just like nourished that thing and your fire is already going and i'm really excited to see to see uh where you go from here and let's definitely keep collaborating in the future and uh i'm looking forward to seeing you when you, when you come to austin so when is uh or where is a good place for people to find you? You have Becoming Conscious podcast. Um, is there any good way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so these days I'm posting most of my stuff on social media. I'm just posting like daily, um, just little like two or three paragraph posts on uh, Instagram and Facebook. So I think the best place to find me would be uh, uh, linking my Instagram and it's... I'm trying to find what the it's Ethan underscore Nelson underscore one. That's where I'm posting most of my, my daily thoughts and insights. And yeah. Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on the show and I, uh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Couldn't think of a better guest for the 10th Praxian to be on the show. And, uh, Ah, good stuff. Thanks, man. Yep. Thank you.